Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing well. It feels good to be back. How are you today, Tim? I am feeling great as well, and it does feel good to be back. And we're back with some good friends in this episode. We recorded live last week on Get Vocal with Shiloh and Scott, the good doctors of LA Not So Confidential. Might I say the award-nominated good doctors of LA Not So Confidential, check out Discover Pods and make sure to cast your vote for them in the Best True Crime Podcast category. They do a great show, Lance, and uh, it's always fun catching up with them. And so we did this show live on Get Vocal, which we try to do every week on Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. But in this one, we spoke about a missing person case that they covered on their show. So if you want more in-depth information on it, maybe you want to go check out their show, but we get pretty deep into it with our conversation here about the disappearance of Jonathan OJ. And really, no one better to cover this disappearance because Jonathan OJ was a law enforcement official. He was a police officer, and we know that the good doctors are affiliated with the police force, so I feel like it kind of hit home for them a little bit more than some of the other stories that they cover. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. And Jonathan OJ went missing on June 11th, 1998 from Angeles National Forest in California. He would be 61 years old today. He was 38 when he disappeared. He's six feet and 165 pounds. And in addition to listening to this episode and listening to the coverage that LA Not So Confidential did on this disappearance, there's also a great article in Los Angeles Magazine by a writer, Claire Martin, who they cite during this interview as well. A fantastic article that covers the details of the disappearance, and you can just Google search that and you'll find it. And we'll pop it in the show notes for you, as well as the link to check out LA Not So Confidential's site. It's la-not-so-confidential.com. You can check them out. They're on the Crawl Space Network, of course, as well, Lance. So, uh, yeah, make sure to cast that vote and subscribe to LA Not So Confidential. 
And speaking of the Crawl Space Media Network, check out all the shows and everything that's going on at crawlspace-media.com. Well, good doctors, you are here tonight specifically on the Missing Channel to speak with us about a disappearance, a case that you covered on your fine podcast, LA Not So Confidential. Subscribe now in your favorite podcatcher and uh, tell us a little bit about the disappearance of Jonathan OJ. Well, which is weird, right? Because we don't cover missing persons cases. So this was a little bit of a stretch for us. And Scott and I base our podcast on usually talking about the psychology of the offender. And of course, it can be victimology as well. But really, this is a departure for us because we don't really cover missing persons cases. We want to dive into a case that has a lot of resolution generally and information psychologically for whatever concept we're looking at. So this was different. However, it's been on our radar for a while. There was a wonderful, wonderful article written by Claire Martin in LA Magazine in 2015 called The Deputy Who Disappeared. And I remember reading this. It was just such a comprehensive, crazy story about this deputy in this agency that Scott and I both have worked with this agency in different capacities of our life. It's very much a legacy for my, my, for me, my parents were deputies at this agency and then I went to their academy. So it, it really hits home in a way that caught our attention. But um, John OJ was not your just run of the mill cop. He was a hard charger. He was a high performer. He was part of their SWAT team is called the Special Enforcement Bureau, SEB. And he had been with them for some time. He was he had been a deputy for 18 years. He was 38 years old when he went missing and had done a lot of time at SEB. He had been a sniper on the SWAT team. And then by the time he went missing, he had actually transferred over to the area as a canine handler. So he was, it was still just a very elite assignment and position within the department and had been in the military. He had been the Army's special forces before he was even part of the LA County Sheriff's Department. So this was a a pretty accomplished guy. Uh, Aside from professionally, he was just an amazing athlete. The weekend before he went missing, he did a 50 mile ultra marathon and then shortly after the date he went missing, he had a hundred mile ultra mar- I, marathons just freak me out on top. <laughs> just right off the bat. I can't imagine these, these ultra marathons are people that are on another level altogether. Yeah. You're talking about a hundred miles. Yes. Yeah. I, I know. That's... So what that's four regular marathons in one day. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But well, once you get into the rhythm, right? <laughs> I mean, 26 miles, 29, 100. I mean, yeah. Once you get 26 miles under your belt, you might as well do another. <laughs> just just push it a little further. In doing our episode, we we looked at a lot of the information. I mean, I, I 
you know, generally we're looking sort of at the psychology of people who are perpetrators. And this was a, a different kind of episode for us. But this is really fascinating because even as Shiloh says, a whole different level doesn't really or only begins to capture it. Like if you look at any stories about ultra marathoners, they are different types of people. I mean, because you are pushing your body to the point of death many times, like there's always the potential of long-term permanent damage to your organs by doing these extreme activities that they're involved in. It does kind of add something to the story because this guy excelled at everything that he, mm-hmm. he went out to accomplish. I mean, Shiloh was talking more about his accomplishments. He was spectacular in that way. Yeah. I, and, and not just marathon, like running on the streets, but these ultra marathons that he would do would take place in some rocky areas, some mountainous areas, some desert areas. I mean, the Southern California landscape is, has a lot of variety to it. You can be in a mountain, but it, it looks very deserty as far as, as the landscape goes. But for, for Deputy OJ, it was June 11th, 1998. And he pulled up to this area called the Devil's Punch Bowl Natural Area. And it's about 60 miles northeast of downtown LA in the Antelope Valley, if anyone's familiar with that, kind of on the backside of the mountains that you can see as Los Angeles' backdrop. And it's, it's pretty desolate over there, especially the late 90s, but very deserty landscape with really deep canyons and these sandstone boulder formations. And this is where he decided to go do a run for that day, a run that was going to take him probably a good part of eight hours. He set out right before noon and had told his wife that he would be back before dark. So June, you're going to have a pretty late setting sun. Um, so this, he was going to be out there for a while and this was all in preparation for the the hundred mile trail run that was coming up, but he had filled his tank with gas that morning. He parked his car at the, the devil's punch bowl. He put up his sunshade, locked his doors, and he took like a green shoulder bag with him that he could put on his shoulder and then run with it on. I'm guessing he probably had his firearm in there. It just most cops, they're going to go for a run and they take a bag with them. They probably got their wallet, their keys, their firearm. And yeah, told, told his wife he'd be back before dark. And he takes off and never comes back from his run, essentially. So it, it's interesting when you look at the timeline of the run, because we actually have people on the trail who saw him. So when we were kind of dissecting what are the theories going on here, because as we've talked with you guys before on your show about people who intentionally go missing, was this one of those situations because there's no body. (laughs) So what, what's happening here, but he had gone out on his run and there were a group of school kids that were out in the nature park with their teacher. And it just so happens that John had been a guest speaker as a canine officer to that very classroom. So he stops and talks to the teacher and talks to the kids, also stating to them, oh, yeah, I'm I'm heading out for a run, but I'm going to be back before sunset. So we have a witness that knows John and recognizes him and places him there, which is really important. And then there were a couple of camp employees who also saw him running on the trail that day. Nothing significant to report. There was nothing unusual about, you know, his presentation. 
And then at around 6 p.m., a third camp employee saw his saw him running, noted that he had the green backpack on or shoulder bag on, and that he was sort of running back into the direction of where the parking lot was. So really, some great witnesses putting him on the path of what he should have been doing that day. Shortly after the last sighting, though, there was a resident, a witness who reported hearing a single gunshot. I don't know, make of that what you will, but it's not unusual really to hear shots out in the desert necessarily. But I think something to kind of tuck away and think about. It's just one of those things that like a single gunshot heard by one person, it would still have to be within an auditory range where this guy was going to be gone for eight hours. He was going really far out. So there's just been a lot of conjecture, but. Yeah. You start running through all the theories in your head and you go, okay, single gunshot sounds like suicide. Um, but then where's the body or did somebody shoot him once or did he shoot someone else once? Was there some kind of trouble on the trail? And it's just hard to say. Um, but his wife eventually around 1130 at night, he doesn't come home and she, she reports a missing at 11 PM. His truck is sealed off at the crime scene. Uh, search and rescue is deployed right away, even though it's nighttime. And it's basically his entire unit that is helping out there search for him because this is sheriff's territory. Everyone kind of figured that, you know, he probably got injured and he's just hunkered down is waiting for us to go out and find him because this was just a guy that was tough as nails. So they continue searching through the next day. By the third day, I mean, everyone's out there. He was former army. I mean, there's army Blackhawk helicopters out there. There's mounted units, thermal imaging, like every technology that they had in 1998. They had this out there looking for John and came up with nothing. And by day six, basically they stopped the search. The command staff without any evidence leading to it or to the contrary say this was a suicide and we're calling off the search and they're done. So he was uh, spotted at 6 p.m., which would be about, you said he arrived there a little bit after or a little bit before noon. Right. So he was just about six hours into the eight hour run. So how, how far away, like distance wise, would he have been from his car at that point? I don't think we should stick to like the eight hours so much. I was just trying to think before sunset. You know, he said to his wife he'd be home before sunset. That could have been six, seven, eight hours. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Yeah. So six o'clock heading back towards the parking lot. I don't know how far away from the parking lot he was, but it was close enough that that person was able to say, yeah, he was in that direction. Yeah. Well, I think the suicide, do, is suicide like a uh, top on, on your list? Do you find, do you hold that up uh, like pretty high? Because don't you feel like he would have just gone as deep in as possible if he was going in in the first place to kill himself and not, not be coming on the, like back the way out? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of, of strong theories. Suicide, while it being strong, and I'm going to come from, there's some confounding factors in here for us as clinicians. While he told his partners, there's where to start with this. So, like, let's let's go with suicide for a second. So, if the if the idea that suicide is going to be an answer, there's some things that support it. There's some things that don't support it at all. Um, what really doesn't support it is is him characterologically. I mean, this is a guy who had a lot of things going for him. And you kind of look 
at like you weigh when we, when we look at situations like this, we weigh like the um, uh, sort of the, the beneficial, the life forward, the future orientation that would pull someone away from suicidality versus the things that are um, compounding and moving them towards that. And historically, we can't find anything. There's, and, but there is, there was indications that he was having problems with his wife, and there was one thing that sounds pretty definitive when it, we go towards suicide, which was he was giving away things that were very important to him. But the statements that's made, like you have to really dive deep into, well, like what was it? How much was being given away? And it wasn't like he was giving away everything and shutting down his house. Mm -hmm. It was a couple of things that were valuable, one of which he had planned to be giving someone for a long time. So did you just happen? Was this just sort of a, a synchronous um, nexus of events where he happened to be organizing and cleaning out his house on the same day he was going to go for this run? So that's really hard to tell. I think it, the thing that's telling and concerning for me most is that law enforcement really went to the suicide very quickly without finding any evidence to that. You know, a disappearance is not indicative of a, of a suicide. And certainly, like, wouldn't you want to at least wait a while to find a body before you make a statement like that? So that I felt really uncomfortable with that. There were a couple other indicators and Lance, I, I feel the same way. Like if he's heading back and he's almost back to his truck, he's going to kill himself somewhere close to there. So wouldn't he be easier to find? But he, there was a statement that he said to his wife before he left that day. And they had a, a five-year-old daughter at the time. Her name was Chloe. And Deborah, his wife, remembers John saying, have a nice life and tell Chloe I love her. So in a certain context, that sounds... Eh, like maybe someone might not be wanting to come back. And I have a yes, but because Go ahead. Go ahead. my yes, but is that I, I am not convinced that his, his wife is uh, a reliable historian. And that's, there's been some historical things. This woman is, is having a very hard life and I have a great deal of compassion and sympathy for her. Her story has been very difficult since OJ disappeared. However, I don't necessarily think she's the best historian for providing facts about yeah. what happened. It's hard because there, she had also reported an incident that if it happened the way it did, and I, I don't know, I wasn't there, um, would be a huge red flag to suicide and sort of what we call rehearsal behavior for somebody who is working up the nerve to die by suicide or who is desensitizing themselves to the behaviors of suicide in which they were in a car having an argument and he put his loaded gun to his head and had said, you know, something to the effect of, should I just kill myself or something like that? For me, if, if I was doing an evaluation and I had a wife that I was able to speak with that gave me this collateral information, that would be huge. Um, it, whether or not someone is reliable or a great historian, of course, there there might be ulterior motives behind what things people report. And because there's such a big system politically and um, safety wise around law enforcement officers, trust me, there are spouses that come out of the woodwork and allege some crazy things because they know it's going to get 
their loved one in trouble. Well, they're probably love lost, but their partner in trouble because there is such a uh, paramilitary organizational structure in which we have to take all of these complaints seriously. So you can just imagine the amount of complaints that law enforcement officers get from family members that aren't happy with them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But erring on the side of caution, I would want to strongly consider that information. because If she is telling me the truth, then that's putting him at a higher risk for maybe being in the mindset of considering suicide. But there are other theories too. There was a, a very uh, sort of well-researched, well-thought-out, but also with some questionable bits of information about whether or not this was an inside job and that he was taken out by another deputy from the sheriff's department. And the idea was that was he taken out by a fellow deputy for the purposes of keeping him from spilling information about the sheriff's department being involved in meth production in that area. And that particular area is really, it's high desert, it's beautiful, it is treacherous, it's dangerous, and it's also sort of this no man's land where there are a lot of meth labs. And so there is some possibility of that at least being in the correct environment. And there's also a lot of outlaw motorcycle gang activity out there. So much so that there was a big task force around this time and a few years afterwards I think that involved like the ATF. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. Um, yes. A federal task force working with law enforcement with a, investigating these these motorcycle gangs, meth production, and the corruption of law enforcement officers specifically from this agency. So everyone can pretty much agree that OJ was a, a pretty straight-laced guy. But did he one stumble across something on his run that he wasn't supposed to see that's kind of a theory or did he know about some dirty cops and they whether they follow him or they knew he was going on a run or whatever decide that's the time to take him out and make him disappear and there was some of the the most um intriguing evidence about that started started bubbling up in a like 1999 there was a homicide detective larry joseph brandenburg he had learned from another de deputy about this rumor that oj had might have been murdered and that another deputy had been involved so brandenburg's captain gave him permission to reopen this cold case um and start re-interviewing people and, and going through the process all the existing information seeing what he can get and there reached a point as he got more and more information where the cold case reopening was shut back down. So he was taken off the case after presenting his investigation results to the command staff. There were several firings that happened in this organization or in this structure and causing Brandenburg to like file a lawsuit that took, that went on for years. And it was only, he actually lost his job and got, um, was able to sue the county and won his case in 2018. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that stuff is sealed. We don't know how much of that has to do with him getting some kind of information, but that's one of the rumors. There's another rumor that was going around that um, the LA County Special Envo Enforcement Bureau had been caught up in an investigation leading to corruption of meth production and sex traffickers in the areas. And it turned up, I mean, that investigation itself turned up at least 50 incidents where they could actually just 
not justify, but they could prove that these things had happened. So the possibility of something like that is actually real. It's not completely out of bounds that it might be. Now, this, this kind of takes us back to where we were with you guys a couple of years ago, talking about uh, Maura and in her case is, could it have been an accident? And it really could have been an accident. I mean, you can be in places. I mean, we talk about here out in Southern California about how careful you have to be when you're in Palm Springs and you decide, oh, look, the hills are right there. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go walking for an hour. Or if you're in um, Joshua Tree, I'm just going to go walking and you can become lost in a completely flat surface in a matter of minutes because it's very, very, the landscape is very disorienting. Um, so one of the things that we do know from the National Park Service and not even going in sort of the questionable productions of uh, missing 411 or anything, but the, the information that we do get from state parks show that when people get lost, they get lost very close off the trail. I mean, the ones that we've been able to, that have been rescued and have been found even sometimes days after are literally less than a mile from the trailhead or from the, from the trail that they wandered off of. So there's always that possibility and what balances it the other way is that OJ was so experienced in this area. I mean, he wasn't hiking, he was running these really challenging trails you know so you and i would be huffing and puffing with our backpack and waters and here's this sort of superman that's zooming past you did he feel confident enough to go off trail and then get lost possibly but then you would expect that after all this time there would be some kind of remains i mean he was a very experienced hiker he'd been on this trail multiple times before so we're just thinking, and as many others investigators have thought, that because even at that time, it wasn't like you were wearing natural fibers. All the running gear is always made of nylon or some sort of like moisture wicking materials. And those materials last longer in the wild. They don't rot. Um, animals aren't able to eat them and digest them. Nothing was ever found, which is really odd. But did he fall into a cave? Did he fall through some sort of arroyo or in a rock fall get covered up that's completely possible too yeah the landscape so you say he's very familiar with it so he trained there often yeah he had trained there in the devil's punch pole pretty often it was a good sort of mimic of some of the bigger runs and trail runs that he had done that was close enough to home um, that he could condition well and why is it called the devil's punch bowl Mm. Oh, we were laughing. We, we, we talk about that in our look anytime. I mean, out, from my understanding is anytime you are um, naming something that is particularly challenging, it's always like the devil's blank, the devil's body part. You know, there's there's the devil slide up in the in Idlewild where I go a lot. I, I'm And I'm not an experienced enough hiker to do that because you can basically slide down half the mountain. Um, very dangerous as the devil's, what did the one, what's the one that you did Shiloh? Devil's backbone is one way to get down, uh, the summit of Mount Baldy Okay. here in Southern California. So, um, yeah, they, I don't know if it's just, um, because of the desolate, dangerous area, you know, that's what people like to name things. Um, but it's certainly ominous 
you know, that's for sure. Um, but I, I don't have any origin story behind it. And Ginger had a great question or sort of a, a, a good observation. She said, it sounds odd that they called off the search after only six days for one of their own. Do you find that odd? I do. I find it very odd. Who Who's in charge of calling off a search? Well, so this, again, this was his own, even his own department, not just, you know, he's one of our own because he's a law enforcement brother, but this is his own department. I don't know at what rank somebody would call off that search per se. I mean, it could have gone all the way up to the sheriff's office. Six days, it sounds like they had a lot of resources out there. I think that's a terrible reason to obviously call off a search. But if you're utilizing resources, you're utilizing manpower, uh, it costs quite a bit of money to do that. Um, from someone who is more of a manager, that might be something that they're considering, unfortunately. Uh, I would hope that if they didn't feel like they could contribute all of those resources due to deployment issues or what have you, at least scale it back and have some someone out there, something out there. But everyone seemed to to know that this was a individual who was well trained in these types of hikes and runs and marathons and six days to me for someone like that feels like a very survivable period of time for somebody like that. Like I, w- I would give it like two weeks before before I would start considering that this person wasn't able to survive anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know if that was the call that was made. There was one witness, he was an investigator on the scene, who swears by his statement that, you know how I said they had had taped off his truck in the parking lot as a possible crime scene. Well, that stayed sealed for a number of days. Like, they didn't touch it, which is odd. Um, Okay. I mean, I I don't know what to make of that. It just seems like you'd want to tear that thing open and see, is there a note here? Like what's going on? But this investigator swears that he saw a firearm, um, a pistol sitting on the dashboard of the truck. Like there it is sealed up and we can see that. Could have been there. Maybe it's a figment of his imagination. It doesn't mean that that was OJ's only gun, but no one in their right mind including a law enforcement officer would leave a firearm exposed in a vehicle that they're going to walk away from. Especially someone that is so, I mean, this guy was an arrow. I mean, maybe to an extent, I think anybody that lives hyper-focused like that has some issues. I mean, because that's, I'm seeing that in the chat, like now we're asking about mental health issues and we don't, we don't have any idea about what the mental history is, mental health history is, but you know, there is there. It takes a certain level of focus that, um, while it's amazing, comes along with maybe some other things like maybe he was rigid in other parts of his life, you know, mm-hmm. but generally for someone of that characterological makeup that's in law enforcement, leaving an, an, a, a weapon sitting on your dashboard, it's that's like it, it's really hard to believe that one. I yeah. found that really believe but shiloh didn't you say when you were just describing the disappearance that he put up the the sunshade in his Mm -hmm. car i'm assuming that's the thing that goes in your windshield right yeah i I don't think that means that from the side window you can't see into the dashboard but oh if that's what you're getting at but yeah 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 i think from another angle you could have been able to see it but but still though 
it rests but, on the dashboard, right? Sorry. It, yeah, we, yeah. I mean, a sunshade would have to also rest on the dashboard like his gun uh, yes. supposedly did too. Yeah. Unless so he maybe taking, taking the gun and he is using that to jam the, keep the sunshade. sunshade in, in, in that would be what I would, that, that would equate my level of experience <laughs> with guns is like, Oh, can I use this as a prop? Do I just yeah. bang it? And then if it doesn't work, I would shoot it. <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. As one does. Oh yeah, my gosh. To, to pin it in place. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. I have one more question about this, about the placement of the gun, because it, it's sticking in my head. Um, as law enforcement, does that feel like something realistic to you, that somebody who is in charge of a weapon would put it on their dashboard? No, no. no. Right. I mean, no. And the only thing that I can think of is that he set it up there and forgot it. However, I think that's a huge stretch as well. I, I really do. Like Scott, this man yeah. lives, he probably eats, sleeps and shits with his gun next to him. So the, the fact that he's going to, he's going to feel naked when he walks away from the truck and goes, Oh shit, right. wait, I left my gun there. No way, especially a SWAT officer that has so much equipment, so much responsibility for so many weapons that it's like a checklist that turns into habit. I also feel like uh, leaving your gun on the dashboard is, w would be a really reckless thing to do. Um, and putting up the sunshade is something that indicates you're... Uh, careful and coming back to your car and you don't want it to be too hot you know they're completely contradictory yeah absolutely i mean very reckless some it's a desolate area anyone's gonna walk by and be like oh free firearm let me smash this window you know it's it's just asking to have your truck broken into so i i highly highly doubt that investigator's recollection I, I do think like of all this, the more sort of fringe ideas, not that I'm going to marry this at all, but I, I do find it interesting thinking about people who are go intentionally missing. Mm -hmm. And if somebody was going to do it and this, like if, if there was an individual who had decided they were going to do it and was going to be successful doing it, it would be someone like this because he's very able to move through the world, but then again, it's like you have an identity as a law enforcement officer, which is an incredibly strong identity. Are you going to give that up for whatever reason to yeah. make yourself disappear? He would have the capability of doing it. I don't know if he would have any investment in doing it. And Shiloh and I were kind of going back and forth on this because in some ways in um, when we are assessing for suicidality, we'll look for future orientation and we may talk about like that um, family responsibilities and children can be a protective factor. And Shiloh was very apt and right on it that that doesn't always act as a protective factor either, does it? Yeah. I mean, someone who is in a frame of mind of considering suicide, a lot of times 
they feel as if they're a burden to others. So just the fact that somebody has a young child that perhaps relies on them as their provider, the way in which someone who's in such deep psychological pain thinks is that my daughter is better off without me or my family's better off without me because I'm a burden to them or I'm just such a toxic, horrible person. Um, so, you know, a lot of his family and friends said he would never leave because he adores his daughter. Um, but his sister said many times he had confided in her that he wished he could just pick up and go to Alaska. So his sister, at least at some point um, through the course of the investigation, as limited as that was, um, had stated that she didn't doubt that he had picked up and just started a new life in the woods somewhere. And if you're, if you are going to go to disappear somewhere in the continental U S Alaska is where you go. And were there any, uh, Ginger's got a question. Were there any financial issues, which actually I wrote down too. Let me give you a, a sort of a, a background, not necessarily saying that it, this is what OJ had any involvement in, but one of the things that I got, it, it was explained to me when I was, um, a, um, correctional psychologist at a state prison is that, you know, our state prisons here in California, the custody or guards go to um, like a junior college for a certain amount of time to get certified and trained on how to be a corrections officer. So many times these are people with a high school education and then maybe like a year and a half of junior college and they go right into a union job with a shitload of benefits and really good money, especially that's really good money for the Central Valley. But one of the things that happens is, is that they'll buy the house, um, they get married, they start having kids, they start buying toys. So they have like a boat and a jet ski and the camper. And then they have an epiphany of like, oh, crap, I now have to pay for all this. I'm going to start working overtime. And then overtime leads to sort of the dissolution of the relationship and so suddenly these financial burdens can like really, really snowball up very, very quickly so that someone working a really great job can suddenly have financial problems. So, and I don't have, I don't even know what he owned. I don't know if he had the camper and the house and the jet ski and the boat and all those things, but it is sort of a, an unresearched phenomenon that is talked about in law enforcement and corrections about how there are a lot of status symbols within that culture that are really desired by many of the officers and deputies that end up taking a lot of money. Shiloh, do you have any perspective on that? It's, it's definitely a, an area that I've like, I have focused on lately in my job as a police psychologist. I, I've been doing this organizational wellness class for law enforcement recently, and I purposely put an entire module on financial wellness in there because of how often they get into trouble financially. And it is because there is abundance very quickly. You have wonderful benefits, a great pension, and whether it's a different city or jurisdiction, not just overtime for, you know, doing your job and holding over whenever you need to, like say a, a crime happens right before you get off work. Okay. You're, you're going to finish out what you need to do and you need to be compensated for that because you're stuck at work writing a report for the, the crime that took place. 
But there are also cities that have these contracts that come and go where there's a plethora of overtime. Like a city could get a contract um, to work the like the transportation. So maybe they have to now they contract to do security for the trains and the metro system. They're walking along. They're doing all that. And then they start to live outside their means. And then guess what, guys? We didn't get the contract this year. And now they're in the bigger house. It, they're sending their kids to good colleges, all that. It's just, it's something where the the abundance of money can ebb and flow. And then you go with the um, the fact that the divorce rate is pretty high, multiple marriages, alimonies, child support. It, it can be tough. But wouldn't you think that somebody who is of that sort of conditioning would be able to handle those things? Or do you think that it's the other way around? Somebody who has conditioned themselves to have everything so strict and rigid can't handle that unexpected pressure, that almost pulling of the plug of all of the normalcy. One would assume that, you know, if they're so organized and, um, you know, have very good boundaries in a lot of areas and are rigid, that they that would be financially as well. I can tell you anecdotally, the SWAT team members that I work with, they work overtime like crazy. They they have they fall prey to the same thing Scott was talking about. They have all the toys, they're keeping up with the Joneses, they got all the ex-wives because they're gone all the time. They're training all the time. They're out on a call out in the middle of the night and there's a lot of relationship issues. So, you know, you can be as as organized as possible. It doesn't mean it's going to the financial stuff isn't necessarily a result of just finances. It's a result of interpersonal issues and stems from other areas. There's even an area we have a, like just North of Los Angeles um, is a, an area that's owned by the County where they have several facilities that are, that are incarceration facilities. And some of them are like, more relaxed, like low level inmates where there's a lot of outdoor activities or outdoor jobs available, as opposed to being downtown in a very, in general population in downtown Los Angeles in a very cramped situation. So here is this sort of idyllic setting that's in the mountains. And there is in the parking lots of one of the main administrative buildings is called Divorcee Row. And it's where a lot of these guys have to pull in campers because they are paying alimony to multiple exes and paying, you know, child support as well as house payments for houses they can't afford to live in anymore. So you just see a row of Winnebago's and camper trucks where these people live. It happens, you know, so even though you would have these assumptions about what people are capable of because they are so capable in some areas of their life that may not generalize into other areas. Absolutely. Once again, this is all conjecture. We don't know if this has anything to do with OJ's um, set up at all. One of the things that we do know, which was very sad is that his wife, at least in 2015, when this article was written that we pulled a lot of our data from his wife was in, in pretty bad shape. Um, she had been waiting for, wasn't there some sort of financial, restitution she'd been waiting for for years Shiloh I mean she was living out of her car for a time yeah well initially oh, you know this was kind of an open issue and so they were like well what do we do with his pension is he classified as dead or not you know that sort of thing so she and her young daughter at the time he went missing they were they had to move in with her parents I think but at the time of this article 
you know, their daughter is grown and living her own life, but his, his wife was living out of her car. Never fully recover. She had, I think she had some medical issues and things like that. And the trauma of just trauma and like, and I was just going to go back to what Ginger has been posting in the notes here. Um, really good observation. You don't know what someone's going through, like what their thing yeah. is behind closed doors. You know, on one side we see, you know, um, you know, typical perfect marriages or the perfect individual who has these superhuman running abilities. And we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. There could be all sorts of life stressors that we know nothing about. So you were saying that his, uh, his wife, uh, Deborah, had been living in her car at the time of the article, which was 2015, and she had been in her car for a couple of years? Yeah, I, I believe so. It had just gotten more dire situation ever since OJ's disappearance. So the trauma is what led you, Scott, to question if she was a reliable witness? That's a really good question. I, you're... you're of you're very journal, very, doing a very good job of putting me on the spot. I have to tell you, that this is one of <laughs> hold his feet to the fire. That's what theory. Tim does. You, that's what I'm known for. You're morally safer. I'm telling you. Um, I this was something that just was like it's it's a little bit sort of um, intuitional or, or gut feeling because there are things that we hear about, you know they when you let when you read interviews where you just let people speak you get a lot of information about who they are and how they function and i'm just thinking i i just got an impression from her that at the time there might have been sort of this behind the doors volatile relationship and volatile personalities which would fit with someone who has a very rigid character in order to do all these things and be an excellent marksman, sniper, specialist in all these areas, who lives a very, you know, rigid lifestyle. And then someone who seems, you know, when I say this with, with compassion, seems a bit dramatic. Um, and then unfortunately has had a series of really bad things happen. So I don't know, but this is one of those things where as a, someone who studies human behavior, I can't help but make some conjecture um, about what a possibility might be. I don't, you know, there's, there was no secret, um, kind of towards the end of this journalistic investigation that not only was there trouble within the marriage, however you want to, um, define that, but he was probably having a relationship with a female ultra marathon runner that he had become friends with and gotten to know through some of his running groups and that part of giving away his possessions was he was, it looked like he was getting ready to move out. And the, the night or the day. One, before, one of them was a piece of furniture, right? It was. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like a, like a, the family Bible or something. It was a piece of furniture. He was. Yeah. Away. Yeah. So, you know, to me, that's like, there's some downsizing going on. He also at one point was hoping to try and, you know, patch stuff together with Deborah he had actually asked to be taken off the canine unit because the hours were so inconsistent with family life. And he wanted to, they were going to give him a job at the shooting range, basically like training recruits and qualifying people. Cause he was very qualified in that area. And at some point he told the, the friend, the supervisor at the training range, never mind, it's not working out with Deborah. So I'll just stay on the canine unit. Cause I love it so much. 
Well, that supervisor, the morning that OJ went missing, got a missed call from OJ and he just, he wasn't able to pick it up for whatever reason. And that's something that sticks with him, obviously, because he thinks like, gosh, what if this was suicide? And what if he was reaching out to me? But rightfully so, I think has come to rationalize it to say, you know, I bet you he was calling me to say, hey, make sure the transfer didn't go through because I want to stay where I'm at. Um, And so, you know, I think their marriage was done. I really think like this was done, whether or not that speaks to. Deborah being upset and spiteful or saying things that would kind of leave it in a certain direction. I don't know. Um, but I really want to address what Ginger said. And she said his brothers didn't feel the, the feel led to help her in any way. That's weird to me. Same because when an or officer, ten. yeah, when, when an officer dies, that family is taken care of yep. very well. Now, of course, if it's in the line of duty, that's, that's in its own thing, right? Like there are so many benefits that go to the kids, to the family. They get, they want for nothing really because, and, and they shouldn't because they've, they've given their family member to this organization and to society. Other moments, and, and I've seen officer after officer die of COVID in the last 18 months. People come out, people are helping, people are, I'm sure you guys have seen it on the news. You know, the the whole department shows up for the kids first day of kindergarten to be there because dad isn't there anymore. Or mom isn't there anymore. There are ways, you know, even if like, okay, we can't, the pension has to be frozen for some horrible reason. Guys can give guys and women, his colleagues can give up their sick or vacation time, like donate it so the family can have that. There's ways where you can take care of people. I'm not saying that's going to last forever and that might run out at some point, but that is, that is something that's a little bit of a red flag for me too. And I don't know why, I mean, could be maybe people don't like him, but that doesn't seem to be the case or did they know something or they just didn't want to touch this. But I mean, even if they didn't like him, I mean, he's still he's still a police officer with them. I'm you, and and if you look at his family, absolutely crumbling and suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everybody didn't like him. Right. Yeah. I I totally totally agree. And, and we also we don't have a clear timeline on on what on Deborah's troubles and challenges. Like we don't know how mm-hmm. quickly that yeah. fell apart. You know, we just know that at the time the article was written, you know, over a decade later, she was not doing well. Yeah, there's there's one last sort of not theory, but his former captain from SEB is obviously like long retired, lives out in Idaho where a lot of cops go to retire. (laughs) Um, And he has been kind of doing his own sort of cold case investigation as well as he can as a retired captain from the sheriff's department and he says that he has information that he believes oj was killed by other deputies and that he was buried out in the desert of idaho and he has done searches in idaho where he has gotten information where oj's body might be so i think that's an interesting twist um he's very I think kind of obviously closed lipped about it and gave Claire Martin a little bit of this information. She went out to Idaho and spent time with him. It's never panned out to anything, but it's really hard to find a body in the middle of the desert or a vast area. 
who else knew where he was going? Good question. Um, I, I don't know that anyone definitively has said that they knew he was taking off for that specific place that day other than his wife. But they, they knew that he ran there. You yeah. know, there, there are people that it, if that's close enough to his house where that's one of his comments to get up and go, I don't think it would be a huge stretch to guess where he's going that morning and somewhere that the the sheriff's department patrols. So even if we want to go with, you know, a theory that somebody from the sheriff's department was involved, all they got to do is drive by and say like, oh, is OJ's truck parked at this parking lot today? Um, if not surveilling him and following him. Yeah. I mean, something, if it was foul play or an inside job with that particular law enforcement agency, they would likely have been tracking his movements for quite a while. You know, they, they knew where he was going. They would have been familiar with his, his anticipated schedule. And was uh, the wife ever considered a person of interest at all? Nothing that I ever read was um, indicative of that. No. Well, I mean, just with the law enforcement background with, uh, with the two of you, I, I, are you con- con- like, d- is it conflicting at all? Do you feel like he was sort of done dirty by, by the department or are you, is it easy or difficult to come to terms with a thought like that? I don't think it, it's not difficult for me to entertain any of that. I think there are so many possible breadcrumbs in every direction that that's what trips me up. You know, I can look at the behaviors and some of the indicators of someone who might be spiraling out of control or have the markers of what we see in law enforcement suicide and go, oh, yeah, like in hindsight, if somebody told me he had killed himself, I could believe that because of, of some of the things I know now. I can't get past the fact there's no body. I really like I can't. Um, so that's really hard for me. And the intentional missing thing doesn't fit well with me either. Because um, we got witnesses who saw him on the trail, like basically on his run out and his run in. So what happened between 6 p.m. and that witness seeing him and him not getting back to his truck? Really, I think those are the missing moments. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. 
They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.